If you would, you can uh, open your Bibles to Romans 8, and we'll read the first 11 verses here in a few moments. Good morning, dear ones. Uh, We've been considering what the Apostles' Creed says, which for centuries um, defines what Christ's church believes, um, setting forth uh, key doctrines from the word of life. Uh, paramount subjects of scripture, foundational for anyone who claims to be a believer. Last time we looked at the phrase, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, that is the glorified incarnate son of God, from his position at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, um, will come again to judge the living and the dead. And that is the coming wrath of God. God's wrath will come and will be meted out by way of the risen, sovereign Son of Almighty God. Tragically, uh, I think you're all well aware, um, preaching that deals with God's impending judgment um, is absent from uh, many pulpits today. Um, Very unfortunate but like trumpeters on the lookout, on fortified walls, have to stand and proclaim the truth, to give warning of coming disaster. So that is to say, preachers who stand in pulpits, they must declare the whole counsel of God. They must preach Sovereign wrath, right alongside sovereign grace. Sovereign love, sovereign wrath, it is all to be preached. Men are not to pick and choose what they, what they preach. And here we, we read clearly in the Apostles' Creed, from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. So uh, the creed's conclusion, or I should say inclusion, of God's impending judgment um, is the last part of the section that has to do with the second person of the Godhead, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then these words, I believe, which are implied in every clause of the creed, um, are here repeated to mark a transition from the second person of the Godhead to now the third person of the Trinity. So this article of the creed declares belief in the Holy Spirit, the third person, the third divine person um, of the Trinity. And that will hold our attention, um, not only this week, but also next week. Um, And I'll explain why in in a minute. But let's begin by looking at Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin... And death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Which, of course, those who have the Spirit can. See, We are enabled. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That is, those who are in an unregenerate state, beloved. This, isn't, this is a category, belief and unbelief. This isn't our, our, our being um, tempted by uh, fleshful desires, things like that. This is a category definition. Okay? In the flesh is unsaved. In the spirit is saved. Amen? Okay. You, however, are not in the flesh, speaking to believers, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, his spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Amen. Now, this part of the creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, is the completion of our profession of the Trinity. And then the creed moves from the creating work of the Father, which we saw a number of weeks ago, to the rescuing work of the Son, and here to the recreating work or the regenerating work of God, the Holy Spirit, who works in us in bringing us all the benefits of Jesus to make us into a new creation, regenerate, new creatures in Christ. Now, as we've noticed in our study, uh, the majority of the content of the creed um, focuses on the second person of the Godhead, our Lord Jesus Christ. In here, uh, we're provided just a single affirmation about the Holy Spirit. So it's uniquely framed here in the creed um, between Christ and his church. The Lord, the head, and the body, his church. So, you know, why such little attention given to the Holy Spirit in this ancient creed, the Apostles' Creed? And the guess of those with minds much greater than mine is that the focal point of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit is to apply the work of Christ to the lives of his people. So there's one brief mention of the Spirit, the third person. And as you know, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is subordinate to the ministry of Christ. Theologians use the terms ontological equality and economic subordination in defining um, the, the work of the Trinity, the triune God. Um, ontological equality is a phrase that describes the members of the Trinity in that they are um, equal in being. Relating to their being or existence, they're, they're equal. They're the same in essence, they're the same in nature. And then economic subordination teaches that the members of the Trinity all have certain roles or functions. Now, as you're well aware... Um, the principal function of the Holy Spirit, 
is to bring sinners to Christ. To redeem, to, to, to regenerate those who Christ redeemed. So he brings our dead souls to life. That is resurrection from the spiritually dead to the spiritually living. The Holy Spirit also is the presence of Christ within his church. He will be present. He's present with us now. He's present with us every Lord's Day as the body gathers together. But that's not the only function of the Holy Spirit, uh, but is indeed the primary function. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian or Holy Catholic Church. When we get to that, Catholic simply means universal. And the communion of saints. So, of course, um, every true saint, every believer is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Um, Thus the framing of the creed, moving from the Father to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, and then directly connected to the Trinity is the communion of saints. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we are in union with God. Amen? We are in union with Christ. Communion, not the table, but the the, the oneness that we share in the Godhead as his redeemed people. So before we look at the phrase having to do with the church, I, I want to spend two weeks looking at the Holy Spirit. Today we'll look at the person and the nature of the Holy Spirit. And then next Lord's Day, um, we'll look at our communion with the Holy Spirit. So before we get to the communion of saints... Next week, I want to look at the the, the communion that we have with the Holy Spirit. Um, That is our common union that we share in Christ by way of the Holy Spirit. And next week, I'm going to be gleaning much from the work of uh, John Owen um, and his masterful work on uh, God the Holy Spirit. Now, many, when they cite the creed today, say, we believe or I believe in the Holy Spirit. Ghost, right? That's what we grew up saying. I believe in the Holy Ghost. Um, That's the version believers have been saying in the English language since about the 15th or 16th century. Um, English translators used ghost to translate the Latin spiritus. Spiritus. Which is the translation of the Greek pneuma, as in, you know, pneumatic or pneumonia. But ghost derives from the old English word ghast, which refers to a a personal immaterial being or or soulishness uh, of either a person or of uh, the divine nature of God himself. But today, ghost um, generally means something much different and conjures up in our minds, you know, thoughts about haunted houses or something. So today, uh, our modern... Translations prefer to translate the Holy Spirit instead of the Holy Ghost. That's, that's the simple reason. But that's where the terminology, anyway, came from. So when we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, we're confessing that the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is divine, He is personal, and He is distinct. He is the distinct, divine, third person of the Trinity, of the Godhead. Co-equal and consubstantial, that is, he's of the same essence and the same nature as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He is eternal, he's underived, he's, he's not a copy, in other words. 
but he possesses all of the attributes of personality and deity is the Father and the Son. He is the Holy Spirit. He. He. An active person. Third person of the Trinity. And I say that because there's much confusion. Much confusion with regard to the Holy Spirit in our day. And it's much ado to poor teaching. As poor exposition inevitably results in poor understanding. Can I get a witness? Amen. So there is a lot of misbelief with regard to the third person of the Trinity. Some speak of him as though he is a force, right? Or an it. The Holy Spirit's not an it. Not a thing. He is God, the Holy Spirit. Now, there are false teachers today, and this false teaching has been going on since the second century, but um, false teachers will teach that he's not a distinct person within the Godhead, but is a mode or is a phase, sometimes manifesting himself. That is, the monotheistic God, one God, monotheistic, that this one God manifests, and manifest is the key word here, manifests himself as the Father, or he manifests himself as the Son, or as the Holy Spirit. That, those are the modes of the false teaching known as modalism. And if you know anyone who is a oneness Pentecostal, if they come from the oneness Pentecostal movement, um, they are taught modalism. And I know the guy T.D. Jakes um, either is or was a modalist. I, I, I read somewhere that he repented of that about a year and a half ago. He was being drilled by two other pastors <clears throat> in front of cameras, and he said that he's repented of that. So I, I pray and I hope he is, has, because he is very influential. But that's, that's modalism. And uh, th- rather than having its roots in the Bible, um, it's a heresy that can be traced back to the 3rd century by Sibelius. Although, as I said, it first actually surfaced in the 2nd century. Uh, but Sibelius taught that the, the monotheistic God progressively revealed himself through offices of the Trinity. That's where modalism was born that God hops from office to office, this monotheistic God. So oneness Pentecostal teaching will use that word manifest. He manifests himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But again, that comes from Sibelius. Now others, that's one false teaching, others will link um, the Holy Spirit with, uh, the only time you hear about him is when it has to do with unusual experiences. Right? I think we all have friends like this. You know, esoteric emotionalism. All of a sudden, now the, the, the Spirit of God is there because of this esoteric, you know, super sensational feeling or something. Now he's there. So they'll associate with the Holy Spirit with vision seeking, you know, divine extra uh, revelation, you know, tongues gibberish, and, uh, you know, healings and this type of thing. Of course, God heals today. God will heal anyone he wants, anytime he wants. But sometimes what these folks will do is they'll have uh, like healing or revival um, 
afterglow, right? Um, meetings. And they're expecting now the Holy Spirit to show up in a very unusual way. So there's a lot of just wrong teaching. But anytime the Holy Spirit, beloved, is associated with you know, mystical ecstasy, visions or supposed revelations or apparent miracles, we must remember, okay, as J.I. Packer rightly states, Satan, who likes to play on our psychosomatic complexity and fallenness, can produce all those things. It's so vital. Because people are easily just swept away. And they, they, they have this false sense of hope. In that in every experience to, to, to know God more deeply, that they have to be you know, lifted up you know, six inches off the floor or something. It's ridiculous. It's sad. But Satan can mimic these type of things. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. And he goes on to say, they refuse to love the truth. They want experience. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So those are the false teachings. First thing we want to understand is that he's on the exact same plane as the Father and the Son. Ontologically equal. Amen? In the Great Commission, Jesus said to his apostles before he ascended, all power and authority has been given to me in heaven above and earth below. Right? Go therefore and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Right? And lo, I'm with you always. And he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is divine. He is the third person. Now, as regards his personhood, And his deity, in the account that we find in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, we're all well aware of of that passage, Uh, we see in the account of Ananias and Sapphira that the Spirit is a person, not a thing, not a force, and that he is divine. Now, as you recall, the scripture says a certain man named Ananias and with his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. And they kept back some of the price for, for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, there's nothing wrong with keeping a portion of it, amen? He could have. But he led them to believe that he was giving them the whole amount. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. You don't lie to a thing. You don't lie to a force. You lie to a person. To lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back, keep back some of the price of the land. And then notice he goes on to say, Ananias, you have not lied to men, but to God. God, the Holy Spirit, 
the third person of the Trinity. So once again, we see the Holy Spirit as a person and as divine. Now, as the third person of the Trinity, he bears witness of the second person. Amen? Second person. In John 15, 26, Jesus said, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So it's not difficult to see there, beloved, that if the Holy Spirit is just another name for God, who is one who manifests himself in in different modes, that would make no sense. John 15, and what Jesus says there would make no sense. It would read like this. Jesus would have said this. When I come, who I send, right? I send from me. I, I, I who proceed from I, I will bear witness of me. In other words, the, the, the verse would be meaningless without divine, with the divine trinity behind it. When I come, I will send to you from me, the spirit of truth who proceeds from me, I will bear witness about me. No, he will bear witness about me. So Jesus is saying, I'm sending a helper. The helper is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes from the Father and from me to bear witness back to me. So a person has a mind, a person has emotion, a person has speech and knowledge and understanding. A thing does not. 1 Corinthians 2, we read verse 10, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. Now, as regards the work of God, who who enables his people to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, it's the work of the Spirit. Notice 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Okay, now Paul, Paul there, he's not saying that nobody can, can say that three-word phrase, Jesus is Lord. Anybody can mouth that. Anybody. Any unbeliever can say that. What, what Paul is saying here is that you cannot say it and mean it and believe it unless the Holy Spirit has done a work of grace within. Anybody can mouth it. But you cannot say that and believe it in trusting yourself fully and completely to Jesus Christ, lest the Spirit of God is within. Remember Jesus in John 6, 44? He said, no one can come to me Unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws him. How does he draw him? Men, Thursday nights, how does he call him? I just gave it away. How does he draw him? The effectual call. Amen, thank you very much. The effectual call of the Holy Spirit is enabled to say, in living faith, 
Jesus is Lord. Praise God for the effectual call. Effective, powerful, by way of the resident presence and power of God Almighty, the third person of the Godhead. Then next, as as, uh, regards the proclamation of the gospel and the application of Christ's atonement, we read in Ephesians 1, verse 13, In Him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is, that is, the Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's proof of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That's the proof and that's the power of the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. And anyone who's a true believer will persevere to the end as a believer because he is preserved by the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Third person of the Godhead. So he, the Holy Spirit, applies the work of redemption purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ to God's elect. Amen? Again, the Holy Spirit applies the redemption purchased by Christ to God's elect. That's his work. So the Holy Spirit is again the ground of our assurance and the guarantee of our perseverance to the end. He's the seal. The seal. In in the ancient um, Roman Greco world, uh, a seal was a mark of ownership. A guarantee. Any, there was a, be a seal on a, on a public document. It would indicate that it came from, you know, like an emperor. It came from an emperor or some proconsul or some regent or something. And that he had executed some particular decree, decree and th- that scroll, it would be sealed with his mark. So it was a, a mark of authenticity. It was a mark of ownership. It was not to be tampered with. Remember, Jesus' tomb was sealed. The seal of Rome was some clay form or whatever they did um, was over the the stone. So if it was tampered with, um, you would lose your life. It was not to be tampered with. So Paul is saying the Holy Spirit is the seal, guarantee of our redemption. It's the guarantee. It'd be like the the thought of an engagement ring, right? The wedding ring. It's its guarantee. It's covenant reality, sealed by the Holy Ghost. Third person of the Trinity. He enables you, he preserves you. All right, so, moving on, as regards uh, the distribution of uh, spiritual gifts to the church. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit. Who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And that is according to the sovereign good pleasure of God. Not everyone has the same gifts, amen? That's the picture of the body. 
There's hands, there's feet, arms, legs, ears, eyes, nose. And he distributes those gifts. As regards fellowship with Christ, Holy Spirit, Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, says Paul, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you, now get this, he may grant you, Church of Ephesus, believer, Christian, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being in order that, get this, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So it is by the Spirit that Christ dwells within his people. You know, you hear a child say, Jesus lives in my heart, right? Amen? And that's, that's a great thing to say. Christ lives in you. Christ entered you the day that you were born again. He didn't rip open your rib cage and physically enter, right? It was the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ who dwells within God's people. So if you read that text, you say, I thought Christ already dwelled in me. He does, but he goes on to say in that passage that uh, the Spirit of your inner being is there in order for Christ to, to, to settle down and be at home within you. To settle down and be at home. That's, that's kind of the language being used. And there he is by the resident presence. That's why I always use the term resident presence of the Spirit. He's there. Okay, now moving on. The Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, existed and ministered long, long before Pentecost. Long, long before the New Testament. As regards his eternality. The Holy Spirit. We read in Hebrews 9, verse 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He is as eternal as is the Son and the Father. He's omnipresent. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. Psalm 139, verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. With regard to his knowledge, justice, and righteousness, Isaiah 40, verse 13. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him... His counsel. Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And he's speaking about the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit. All the prophets were inspired and carried along by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 1 verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture... Now, he's talking about the Old Testament. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
He is creator. Holy Spirit, creator. Just as much of a creator as is the Father and of the Son. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, right? We read in John 1 that all things were created by Him and for Him and through Him and without Him nothing was made that is made. Amen? Same is true of the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, went into Nazareth. He went into the local synagogue. And he stood up and took the scroll from the attendant. And he came to this verse, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Amen? So the second person of the Godhead was conceived by the third person of the Godhead in the womb of Mary. He was led by the Spirit his entire earthly ministry. He was dependent upon the Spirit during the entirety of his ministry. He died and was crushed and was held up to endure it by the Holy Spirit. The power of his ministry was by way of the Holy Spirit. Beautiful, isn't it? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he said. And then he went out after his baptism. Remember, during his baptism, the Father speaks from heaven. There's the Son in the water. He's baptized. And what do they witness? The Spirit descend like a dove. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all present. That throws modalism right out the door, doesn't it? All present at the baptism of Jesus. And from that point, the scripture says, he was led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan. God the Son is led by God the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for the glory of of the Father, because he will conquer. And he did conquer. Amen? So that's enough for today. With regard to the, the, the person, the work, and the nature, and it, we've only scratched the surface, amen? Of God the Holy Spirit. Him, not it, not a force, not some kind of esoteric experience. He is God the Holy Spirit. Um, Next time, we'll look more at uh, the Holy Spirit conceiving Christ, leading Christ, empowering Christ, 
and that he was sent by Christ and manifested himself in a fresh new way at Pentecost. Poured out in a new way. And it was a way that was foreshadowed long, 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 long ago, which we'll look at. And then hopefully we'll have time to, to look not only at that, but our, our communion with the Holy Spirit. And as I said, I'll probably I'll glean much from John Owen, the great John Owen. So it'll be after that that, that we'll look into the Holy Christian Church or the Holy Catholic Church, what Catholic means, what it doesn't mean, communion of saints, and we'll work our way on through the rest of the creed, uh, which will take us to the end of May. And then we'll go on a hiatus for June and July. And then we'll have a new study in August. I don't know what yet, but uh, it'll be something. Amen, beloved? God, the Holy Spirit. There are no people of God. There is no church without the Holy Spirit. There are no redeemed saints without the Holy Spirit. Amen?